Okay, um, open up your Bibles. We're going to just jump right to the end of our passage. Um, Acts 26. Acts 26, we're going to read Paul's third and final account of his calling to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is one. This is his fullest account. It's almost like he keeps getting interrupted all the other times he tries to share it. Um, but here he finally gets to speak. And, and, and for time's sake, we're going to read starting at verse 9, where, where Paul describes who he was before Christ called him on the road to Damascus. And this is Acts 26, verse 9. Paul says this, I was convinced, by the way, Paul is standing before a trial, uh, before uh, King Agrippa, who is the last of the Herodian kings, Agrippa and his wife Bernice, and Festus, the governor of Israel, is there before him. They're hearing one last time from Paul, as you will soon see why they are listening to Paul. And this is what Paul says in verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I did not only lock up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That is the life of Paul before Jesus met him on the road. Absolutely opposed to the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me. And those who journeyed with me, uh, um, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appointed to you for this purpose I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, 
we thank you so much for this chance we have to open up your word again. And we ask through the power of your spirit that you would give us eyes, open our eyes afresh and anew to see the power and sovereignty and control of your son throughout church history and even in our lives. We pray this, that we would not shake with fear or tremble, but that we would be faithful to obey. We pray this all in his name. Amen. There was a there was one piece of German propaganda during World War II that was particularly effective. It had the impact of sending chills down the backs of the GIs uh, even 50 years after the war was over. And this propaganda machine used by the Germans had, uh, was named Axis Sally. She was a radio disc jockey, you could say, who played a lot of fun music that the Allied troops loved to listen to. It was the newest stuff that they loved to listen to. But she also interspersed these, these music, uh, these, uh, this music with little reminders that she knew who they were and she knew what their plans were. Actually, if you get into the history, her real name was Mildred Gillers. She grew up in Maine. She sought to be an actress on Broadway, and when that didn't work out, she went to seek her fortune in Paris, and then she met a German man and got married to him, and then eventually moved to Germany. And when the war broke out, instead of returning back to the States like most Americans did at that point, she stayed and became Axis Sally. Sally. And with her her, uh, British, uh, or her, her... her English, she could sound uh, very familiar to the GIs, and she'd give them music that they loved, but she also caused chills to go down their spine. For example, one time she said this over the radio, Hello to the men of Company E, 506, 101st Airborne, in Auburn. Hope you boys enjoyed your pass to London last week. Oh, by the way, please tell the town officials that the clock on the church is five or three minutes slow. And of course, all of these were exact and accurate details. And this caused the GIs to tremble. How does she know this? Fifty years later, they were asking this in interviews. How in the world did she know this information? The, the detail of some of her reports would have a natural impact on you when you're trying to fight a war in enemy territory, wouldn't it? Well, if she in Germany knows that, what else do they know about my whereabouts and where I'm going to be tomorrow? It caused chills to go down their spine. And I would suggest to you that in the same way, sometimes Christians probably act fearfully because the devil's attacks And his wiles seem so precise and seem to be so perfectly selected and seem to come against us at all sides as if he knows our every movement. He knows the weakness of our flesh and he knows how to manipulate and use it and use the world around us. And it can be discouraging. It can send chills down our backs. Attacks seem to be all over the place sometimes. And this is always the way it's been with the people of God. Job, of course, suffered blindly without understanding what was going on in heaven and around him in the spiritual realm. Paul, of course, as we saw last week in Acts 20, he he had a promise from the Holy Spirit every single place that he went. 
it was this, that in every town imprisonments and afflictions await me. Like that's just what he had to look forward to. I am going to suffer for the name of Jesus. Jesus himself said uh, to anybody who wants to be his disciple, and this includes you, right? Hey, count the cost. Following me is not easy. You should count the cost before you just decide to be a Christian. He even said this in Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace into your life. I have not come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword. Uh, the result of me in your life could possibly result in, in you having family problems. Uh, he says this, uh, I have come to turn father against son and son against father because of their allegiance to me. Whoever, he goes on to say, whoever loves his father or his mother more than me is not worthy than me. And then he also says, who does not take up his cross daily and follow me is not worthy of me. If you want to follow Jesus, you are going to meet persecution. And it's one of the, the, the main aspects of Jesus' call to discipleship. Hey, are you sure you want this? Right? Because it, it will shut, send chills down your spine to look at the amount of, of danger that you will face. And like I said, this has been a problem with the children of God all throughout history, from the very beginning. Matter of fact, we see in Psalm 44, the psalmist speaking this way. He has the great things to say about God. You are my king, O God. Order salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes, he says in verse 5. But then in Psalm 44, verse 9, look at, this is the real life experience of the person who follows and believes in God. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out before our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nation. You, this is the experience, you have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price. Paul will quote that very psalm in Romans 8, that that whole idea of hate. God's people are going to suffer. God's people are going to have problems in their life. Uh, The believer is going to have and going to feel the force of being in the crosshairs of their enemies if they want to be faithful to Christ. And of course, this is what Paul knew. And as we we jump back into Acts for one of the last times, we're just going to kind of cruise through Paul's final um, time in Jerusalem. He's gone back to Jerusalem to, to bring aid to the Jerusalem church. You remember from First and Second Corinthians and Romans that he was going to Jerusalem to bring a, uh, an aid package because the famines were so intense in those days that the Jerusalem church was very weak and they were provided for very uh, generously by the churches in Macedonia and Greece like the churches of Philippi and Corinth. And, and Paul goes to Jerusalem, and, and we just want to kind of cruise through kind of like kind of the ins and outs of what happened, try to be uh, fairly quick, and then I want to lay out two applications for your life from these things. But the main thing that I want to point out to you is that trouble follows people who want to be faithful to Jesus. Trouble is out to get you. And if you're not ready for it, If you don't remember the lesson that we have for you today, it will cause you to lose focus and be distracted and fail and be disobedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's 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 get to the account here. If you turn back in your Bibles to Acts 21, 
Acts 21, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem and then finally makes it to Jerusalem. Now, in route to Jerusalem, if you've read through Acts, you, you know this is the case. We referenced this last week as well. In verses 21-4, he's in Tyre with Christians, and they are warning him about the things that are going to be coming his way in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 21-11, he's in Caesarea, and through a prophet, Agabus, he's being warned about the things that are going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He is walking in to a city that is out to get him, and he knows it. But of course, that doesn't stop Paul. He still is eager to go to Jerusalem for some strange reason. When he gets there, the church greets him gladly, it says in verse 17. They are eager to see him. They've, of course, already discussed the matters of the Gentiles with him in Acts 15. He, he declares God's work that has been happening through him in the, in the Gentile regions of the world. And it, and it has this effect on the Jerusalem church. Number one, they, they give glory to God in verse 20. And they're glad in verse 17. They're glad and they give glory to God. This is what Paul wants. And this, of course, presents a question, why would Paul go to Jerusalem if he knew trouble was awaiting him? Well, whatever it is, he had determined that the Spirit of God had, had commanded him to go to Jerusalem. And these warnings that he receives aren't necessarily saying, you shall not go. It's just saying, hey, this is what's going to happen to you when you go. Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem to complete a work. Now, Luke doesn't go into a lot of detail about what that was in Jerusalem as much. But we know, like I said, from the letters of Paul, that it was to provide a generous gift to the Jerusalem saints who were suffering from the famines. And you could say it like this. Paul was more concerned about demonstrating the grace of the gospel in the Gentile church to the Jewish uh, church than he was in his personal safety. It was more important for him to go there personally and say, look at the grace of God and the impact that it's had in the Gentile church. This was his purpose. And if you read Ephesians 2, 13 through 19, you you see his, his reason for this. He wants the church to be one. He doesn't want there to be divisions in the church like there has been. He wants them to be united. He wants the Jewish believers to see that the Gentile believers are their brothers, and so on and so forth. Paul is eager. He is, he is zealous to do this, and he is willing to even suffer for the sake of the gospel and for communicating the grace of the gospel at work in fellow believers. But this is, of course, where he runs into a problem. You see this in verse 20. It begins, it begins in verse 20, at least. And, and basically, from here on out, it's kind of like an Indiana Jones movie that doesn't stop. It's just danger after danger after danger. But verse 20, the, the, the elders of the church and, and James uh, in Jerusalem say, and, and notice this, this is very important, they say, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Notice here, first, the danger here is believing Jews that are misunderstanding Paul. These are Christian Jews who are misunderstanding Paul. They are believing rumors about Paul. What are those rumors? That he's disregarding the law of Moses. That he's telling Jews to disregard the law of Moses. That he's, that he's telling Jews not to circumcise their children. Now, if you've been alert and awake at all during Acts, this is not what Paul is doing. 
he is saying, he is insisting from Acts 15 on, that the Gentiles do not need to become Jews and do works to become saved, to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't say we should remove the law of Moses. He has no problem with the law of Moses as long as it's not the basis of your hope. If, if you are a Jew, there are certain customs that you should practice, and that's fine. But if you're, you're basing God's love towards you in something you do, he's got a problem with that. Of course, these Jews are misunderstanding Paul, so what does the Jerusalem church do? They, they come up with this plan for Paul to join these men finishing their Nazarite vow. And in this way, Paul can demonstrate to all the Jews in Jerusalem, particularly the Christian Jews, that he is not throwing away the law, but that he still intends to keep it. But the danger in Jerusalem is greater, perhaps, than the even Jerusalem church understood or realized, or, or however you want to say it. You notice in verse 27, while Paul is about to complete the process of going through this purification with these Nazarite men, um, Jews from Asia, some of Paul's old friends, probably from Ephesus, see him in the temple, and they stir up the crowds around him. Perhaps what they're thinking here is, hey, we've never got a shot at Paul because we were in Ephesus or we were somewhere in Asia because we had uh, Gentile leaders who didn't really see this as a problem. But now that we're in Jerusalem, we'll get the whole entire city to riot and Paul will be removed. And we'll have no more Paul problem in our life. And this is what they do. And, And of course, this massive riot starts. They drag Paul into the temple courts. By the way, I don't know if you have, did you have this? By the way, uh, the temple courts were quite big. They were, they were probably the biggest gathering spot in Jerusalem. So this would be a place where, where if there was going to be a riot, it would be the worst place for a riot because there could be a ton of people in this place. And we see in verse 31, in fact, word came quickly to the tribune. He's in charge of the whole entire cohort of Roman soldiers that were in Jerusalem at the time that the city is in confusion. And of course, he is actually in an ideal location to deal with this. He is probably stationed with these, all of these uh, Roman soldiers right there in the fortress Antonia. Not to be confused with our own Tony Bray, but there is a fortress named after her. Uh, but you can see right up there in the corner. As a matter of fact, go to the next slide here real quick. This is the fortress. You see they've got those big towers. They're on the, the northwest side of the temple courtyard. And, and notice, this is curious to me. But notice the tallest tower soaring about 100 feet over the temple court itself is not actually concerned about what's going on outside of the temple court. They're concerned about what's going on inside the temple court. It's almost like, hey, if there's going to be problems in Jerusalem, it's going to be in the temple courts of Jerusalem. So there's a guard up there in that wall. He can see everything that's going on in the temple court. And soon enough, he tells the tribune about what's going on in the tribune because the fortress Antonia, or Antonia Fortress, however you want to say it, uh, it has these two flights of steps that go right into the courtyard. And this is also where the barracks are. So the soldiers can get down there very quickly. And as we see in verse 31 and 32, he took soldiers and centurions, at least 200 men, because a centurion was in charge of about 100 men, they ran down. And when they saw uh, what was happening, they stopped uh, beating Paul. Well, that's the Jews, of course. And then, of course, the tribune drags Paul back up the steps onto the, the kind of the, 
the balcony there of the fortress, and Paul asks permission to speak to the people. And of course, now the tribune uh, kind of reveals that he has no idea what's going on. He thinks Paul is an Egyptian zealot that caused problems earlier for the Roman people. But when he learns that Paul is a Jew, he lets Paul speak. And then, of course, Paul in chapters 22, gives kind of a, a testimony of himself. And, and initially, the people are willing to, fall, uh, to listen to him because, it says in verse 2, he is speaking to them in the Hebrew language. And they listen to him, and he talks about how he has been lawful all of his life. Matter of fact, he even says, I've been zealous for the law, very much like you have been. And he talks about how uh, the Lord Jesus appeared to him. And then he, he talks about how one of the Christians in Damascus, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, says verse 12, he also confirmed what happened to me. So he's, he's emphasizing how lawful he has been. And the crowd listens to him all the way up to verse 21 where he says, he, rec- he recounts what Jesus said to him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And of course, this is not what they want to hear. They're angry about this as, as a matter of fact. And this, of course, causes the tribune to take Paul away. And the tribune takes him into the barracks. He's going to examine Paul by flogging him. This was the Roman way of interrogation. If we whip you long enough, you'll tell us the truth. And then as they're coming near to beat Paul, Paul says something very strategic. In verse 26, uh, sorry, no, that's, that's the response to it. Uh, when they were about to stretch him out, it says in verse 25, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Maybe Paul didn't have a chance to say it before, but his timing here is impeccable because this causes the Roman centurion to fear greatly. They could be in great problems if they beat and hurt an uncondemned Roman citizen. Of course, this causes the tribune to be more and more confused about who Paul is and what's going on here. And in verse and in chapter 23, we see the tribune brings Paul before the council, the high priest and, and all of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were in Jerusalem. He brings him before the council, and he wants to hear what they say is the matter with Paul. And it becomes quick, quickly clear that Paul is hated by all of these men. But then Paul has a little piece, another little ingenious piece of strategy here. In verse 4 of chapter 23... Um, verse 5, he said, I, I did not, no, sorry, 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 let me, let me, I should stop talking and start reading my notes. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, you might say that doesn't sound like a very ingenious strategy to me. I can see he's maybe trying to link up a little bit with the Pharisees, and that actually is exactly what he's trying to do. The Pharisees believed in the supernatural and the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. And so Paul right here is splitting the group in two. Matter of fact, as a result, some of the Pharisees are like, well, maybe this is true. In verse 9, and of course, this all results in the Jerusalem Jews, particularly probably the Asian Jews that are in Jerusalem, becoming more angry with Paul. And they get together some Jews to make a plot. And notice in verse 12, uh, the next day, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now notice this, they are willing to go without food until they kill him. 
they're going to get it done, right? Otherwise, they're not going to eat. They're going to starve to death. And of course, this news just sovereignly slips into the ears of Paul's sisters. We see in verse 26, she lets Paul know, Paul lets the tribune know, and then the tribune powerfully removes Paul from Jerusalem and brings him all the way over to the coastal city of Caesarea, where the Romans kind of set up their main city, their capital city of that region. Matter of fact, I got a slide here. Um, you can see the, the trail. You can't really see it at all, but you can see, hey, they're going towards the sea. Um, so that's where Paul ends up. And of course, this should indicate something else to you. This tribune is treating Paul as if he is an innocent man. As a matter of fact, he gets 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go with Paul to Caesarea. The, all the signals that he are, is sending to us is that Paul is an innocent man. And this is a theme that we'll see throughout these following trial years of Paul in Caesarea. And of course, he brings Paul to the governor of the region, which was Governor Felix. Now, this wasn't a black cat. This was a man named Felix who actually was, um, at this time, the governor of the entire region Matter of fact, it's kind of an interesting little history of Felix. He originally, him and his brother, were slaves in Rome. They became free men, and he uh, craftily and ambitiously worked his way all the way up through the ranks to being governor of Judea. Now, some people would say, Judea is not a very great place to be a governor. Haven't you heard of Pontius Pilate? Uh, you know, all these kinds of things. But hey, for a, for a slave to go from that is pretty impressive to me. But this man has the, the, the ruthlessness of a, a slave willing to, to claw his way up the rungs of ambition, right? That, that's who Felix is. Matter of fact, he was known for also being very harsh in how he handled the Jewish situations during his time. Matter of fact, anti-Roman uh, um, fervor increased during him. As a matter of fact, he was, he, was he was eventually replaced by another governor named Festus because of how poorly he handled the Jews in their region. And of course, um, Paul comes before Felix in verse 24. Felix does nothing for five days until Ananias, the high priest, and some of the elders and a spokesman come up from Jerusalem to present their case. Now, another fun little background to Ananias, the high priest. I kind of think of Ananias as kind of like the gangster high priest. They say he was really corrupt. He did a lot of wheeling, dealing with Rome to stay in power. He was really fat. They, they, they described him as a glutton. Um, so Ananias was a gangster high priest. We could call him like that. And, and he comes with some of his cronies, you could call them, um, and um, a spokesman. And they lay out their case before Paul. And, and really, notice, notice what they emphasize in verse 5 of 24. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout all the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It takes one to know one, right? Uh, this guy's a gangster. Don't go near him. Once again, they're playing to Felix's ambitions, right? This guy's a problem. You can remove him really quick and have no more problem. What's Paul's defense? Well, I'll summarize it for you. He emphasizes several things about himself. He emphasizes his peacefulness. In verse 17, even, he says, Look, I came here to bring alms, alms to my nation and to present an offering. He emphasizes his lawfulness. He's in verse 16, he says, I take great pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Or in verse 18, 
While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some of the Jews from Asia, they kind of started all this. Look, I've been lawful. I've been peaceful. And he also like pokes fun at the groundlessness of their accusations against him. Matter of fact, he says in verse 11, hey, look, I've only been in Jerusalem 11 days. And I haven't had time to do anything else. I've been, keeping the, I've been too busy keeping the law to cause any riots or problems. And you can verify this yourself because I came through this very city. And then I love verse 18 and 19. He says, eh, it was some of the Jews from Asia who ironically are not here right now to bring their accusations against me themselves. So he, he really pokes holes in their weak arguments against him. And, and matter of fact, this is my favorite part, verse 21, he says, okay, okay, if, I, if, if, I, if I'm really, really working hard to try to figure out why I'm in trouble here, there's one reason. There, there's one reason why they want me dead. And notice what he says in verse 21. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. I mean, Listen to this. If you're going to get in trouble for anything, get in trouble for the truth. Get in trouble for the gospel. Always say, hey, this is why I'm in trouble. It's because I believe in the hope of the resurrection. There's there's no other reason why I'm in trouble today. But to to wrap it up, and and Paul will stay here for about two years in Caesarea, um, kind of jumping from trial to trial to trial. Uh, He sees... He sees a lot of things happen. He sees a new governor come, uh, Festus, in verse 27 of chapter 24. Of course, we've already kind of indicated that Felix really wasn't that popular in Rome anyway. And so Festus came and replaced him. But, but all throughout these trials, if you were to read through them, you'd see that the Romans are interested in using Paul for their own political leverage and purposes. Felix in verse uh, 24, verse 27, he knows that there's no case against Paul. So, so all he can do is keep Paul in prison for two years and hoping that the Jews will be more pleased with him in that way. And, and Festus, he comes. The Jews try to take advantage of Festus's ignorance of this issue, by the way, by, by pouncing on him when he comes to Jerusalem and saying, hey, you should send this guy back and, and we'll deal with him here. Uh, we don't want to trouble you. You send them back to Jerusalem, we'll handle it. You know, they have an ambush ready. You know, um, that's kind of how they are. Gangster, gangster Ananias, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, Festus, but even though he's, he, he can see through it a little bit, he still wants to make the Jews happy. And he tries to get Paul to go to Jerusalem. Of course, that leads Paul to basically appealing to a higher court, saying, I appeal to Caesar. And, and we see Felix keeps talking to Paul, and Luke hints, well, well, Felix has Paul in prison for those years, that he's really just trying to find a, a bribe from Paul. You see that in 24, 26. So all of these, these, these governors are kind of seeking their own political ends from Paul. That's what we see. And, and we see as well that the, the Jews are, are trying to destroy Paul. The, the governors are trying to seek their own purposes from Paul But all of this, in the end, just gives Paul amazing opportunities to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. And as I said before, if you jump over to 26, this is Paul's longest statement in the book of Acts of his calling. I don't think that's an accident. 
he will appeal to Caesar because he knows he's not going to be treated fairly here. And by the way, he wants to go to Rome anyway. That was his plan once he was done with Jerusalem. So, hey, might as well just get there through Rome's bank account instead of my own. This is, this is a great idea. So he appeals to Caesar, and that's what eventually leads him to Rome. And in 26, just so you know, um, Festus just doesn't know what to do about all this. I just got here. This guy's appealing to Caesar already. I think this trial was mishanded. And and now I have to send Paul, because I'm legally obligated to send Paul to Caesar, but I have no idea what to tell Caesar the problem is. So, thankfully, King Agrippa, like I said before, and Bernice's wife, the the last Herodian king, who would actually last a very long time because of his ability to survive, he shows up to congratulate Festus for coming to power and maybe get on his good side as well. And and Festus is like, can you help me out with this Paul problem? He, He came here, and now the Jews are trying to get him to go to Jerusalem, and now he's appealed to Caesar. I have no idea what to do. So Agrippa's like, yeah, I'll listen to him. And so that, that's what gets us to verse uh, or to chapter 26, where Paul lays out his final statement of his calling before Festus. Of course, this results in basically Festus saying in verse 24, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. And Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational things. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And then, of course, the king powwows with Festus, and they basically say, this guy's innocent. Once again, this is like the fourth time we have a hint or a statement by the Roman soldiers themselves that Paul is innocent. Now, there's a, there's a purpose, there's an underlining purpose to this. Uh, remember, Luke is writing to a government official. Perhaps he's trying to prove Paul's innocence. That's one of his underlining purposes. But what do we make of all this? What do we, what do we make of all this a glob of trial and, and here and there and plots and intrigue? What is the take-home for you today? Well, I'm going to present to you two applicational thoughts, okay? If you have not been taking notes, here's a great time to whip out that pen and start writing. I want to suggest to you two lessons that you can take away from these chapters of Paul's trouble and trial. Remember what we were talking about initially. If you want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, trial is going to come after you. Man was born for trouble. His sparks fly upward. That's what, that's what Job says. And if you want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, more and more trouble will follow you. That's what Paul has been saying all throughout Acts, right? Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. So what can you remember? What can you remember in those times of difficulty and temptation and trial and discouragement when you feel like Everything's pointed at you, and trouble is coming your way. Here, here's one thing to remember. I think I have a slide for this date. Uh, yes, okay. Christ's purposes remain over 
evil aims. Christ's purposes remain over evil aims. There are many evil aims in the world, but I want you to see something in this message. That evil is not as powerful as Christ's purposes. And actually, we see this throughout this account. Such aims fit into Christ's purposes. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ uses evil in his program. What a powerful thought. It reminds me of Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph says to his brothers who had sold him to be a slave to Egypt. He says, you meant it evil against me, but God meant good. Same word, meant, meant, both places, right? God meant this evil for good. Christ's purposes remain over evil's aim. Do you remember Axe's Sally? Axe's Sally caused a lot of uh, tremors to go down the spines of the GI troops, as you remember. She knew a lot of details about them. But there was a reason she knew all of these details about these soldiers and their whereabouts. And, and uh, the explanation is she was the product of the double cross system. Double cross system was uh, referring to spies and espionage. Basically, what the British did, the, the German spies came over to London and Britain and they tried to spy out things. The, Brit, uh, the Britons figured out who they were. They turned them into double crossing spies and then, through carefully curated information, they sent back true information to Germany. But just enough information for the Germans to hang themselves. The Germans believed to, to, to the very end of the war that they had the best spies because they had such accurate information. But the British double-cross system simply fed them enough truth to make them think they were in control. But really, in reality, these spies were being given carefully curated information to help the Allied cause. As a matter of fact, Every once in a while, the Allies used these spies to send a little bit of misinformation to get them off the trail. It was carefully selected information. It was appeared evil going back to Germany, but always under the control of headquarters back in Britain. Their power remained over it all. And this is the same way that's how evil works in the life of the believer. The Lord Jesus Christ is over it all and in control of it all and even works through it all for the good of his people. Evil purposes are never outside of the power and the control of your sovereign God. What the Jews meant against Paul... What did they mean? They meant to destroy Paul, to ruin him. Christ meant for good. He gave Paul more and more of a larger platform, even to more and more Jews. What the Romans meant for their own selfish ambition and political maneuvering, like money, pleasing the Jews, political gains, Christ meant for good, Paul's protection, and to bring him all the way to the end of his journey that that Jesus had promised he would take him on. All to say, uh, Christ's purposes are over. 
There, there is nothing that can happen to the Christian that is outside of the control of Christ and doesn't fit into Christ's plan. And, and if you aim to be a faithful believer, even trouble and problems in your life can, can be a comfort to you because you know that Christ's power remains over evil, even evil ends. But there's another thing I want you to remember. How about this one? Christ's continued mission is unstoppable. Now, once again, this, is, this has been my summary statement of Acts all along. And this is, this is just the case that I keep running into again and again in this book. We, we see this all throughout. The risen and ascended Christ is continuing His work throughout the book of saving sinners, of building His church, of filling up kingdom citizens for His return. This is done through the faithful witness of the church to the, the apostles' witness. It's done by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's all done according to the plan of God the Father. But Christ's work is unstoppable. Even the Jews in Asia who think we have him now, they can't ever seem to get Paul to die. And even Paul himself, and this is an amazing thing, and I hope you saw it there in verse 9 of 26, right? He said, when I, before Christ called me, I myself, what did he say? Was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did this, and I did this. And notice verse 11 I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. All the power that he had was nothing in comparison to the unstoppable power of Christ when he is on his mission. And this is maybe the point of of Luke giving us Paul's calling three times. The Lord Jesus Christ's work is unstoppable. He can save anyone, even someone like Paul. He will not be stopped. And Jesus Christ, I would submit to you, is still just as powerful and is still continuing his work even today. And we have the joy and privilege and comfort of serving him in his unstoppable work that continues. As a matter of fact, at the end of reading through this passage, all I could get out of all I, could, all I could think about was, was this. It seems like at the very end, the only person that Paul feared was Jesus. Uh, Jesus was the only person that ever stopped Paul in his tracks. And after the Lord appeared to Paul and stopped him in his tracks, Paul set off in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ in an unstoppable mission in serving his master. It might, it might not be a long mission, but it will be a faithful mission and it will be an unstoppable mission because the Lord Jesus will bring you as far as he purposes you to go. And that is a comfort and an encouragement, is it not? Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the blessing of being called your people, of being summoned by your grace and commanded to obedience to you. What a mercy, what a privilege, what a grace that we do not deserve. We pray that you give us eyes to see the way the world truly is, and who is truly in charge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.